dudes, what is up? Welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 276. And today, there's a number of things I want to start off with right off the bat. First of all, uh, yes, I'm managing to do a podcast back-to-back, one week to the next for the first time in, I don't know, a couple months, which is just ridiculous. We're finally making it happen. So excited about that. That's one thing. Hoping to do it for the whole month of July as we go through Midsummer Musings, just some things that I've tried to work through in my own mind or I'm still working through, sometimes no resolve, sometimes always tampering, tinkering, tinkering, recalibrating to think what I think about things. That's kind of what this month is all about. So that's kind of what this whole thing is going to be even today. Uh, also, you might hear it a little bit in my voice. I'm just enjoying these newfound allergies in midsummer living. So I uh, <clears throat> was out on the back porch last night with friends, hanging out all night, and uh, paying for it today, which is fantastic. I always have to pay for that. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, it, I think it kind of gives you a little bit of a cool, sultry radio voice. So, I don't know, maybe I'll lean into that at times. So that's the second thing. Third thing, though, today, the musing that I'm dealing with kind of flows out of this last Sunday's topic, this last last Sunday, last Sunday's topic on the Bible and science. And there we kind of just did a very generic vanilla look at how you can see the Bible and science as allies, that really the task of the Christian as it relates to the biblical world and the natural world is to apply interpretive tools to try to discern, ascertain, understand the overall revelation of God. And so even under science, I looked at kind of internal science, psychology, external science, which is kind of general science around creation. And then, of course, we looked at you. how do you use the science of the Bible to interpret the Bible. And I really do firmly believe that in that, the task is interpretation. We're trying to understand the hidden things of God, as it says in Proverbs. And it's a joy for us to explore the hidden things of God, all the little mysteries and secrets God has buried into creation that we get to sort of unearth and try to understand more. And then from that, to leverage for the good of our world. Like, that's part of what this process is, too. So it's like those things, like, you've ever had a hip replacement? taken a class online, enjoyed being able to thrive because of a medication, uh, gone from being a person just completely paralyzed by anxiety, and now you have kind of emotional freedom. All those kinds of things is because we dug in and we understood things in the scientific world, and we were able to apply those then into the human condition in a way that was positive and brought flourishing. And that's the beauty of science. And then, of course, coupling it with the Bible that says, hey, man, love God, love your neighbors yourself bring flourishing to the world, bless the nations, which is the covenant God gives to Abraham, and how because we have the knowledge of the Bible and we have the knowledge of science and we blend them together, we can do these kind of corporate acting good things, right? So that's why I have a passion for the subject. And so we talked about that on Sunday. That was the whole thing. But in there, I talked about, hey, there's all sorts of different views uh, related to probably the more... um, divisive subjects in science for Christians. And that in particular has to do with the beginning of the Bible, the creation of the world, evolution versus creationism versus progressive creationism versus old earth theory versus young earth theory versus gap theory. I mean, there's all these different things. And in there, I shared that, hey, and I'm one of the wing nuts that believes in theistic evolution. And therefore, I will talk about why I believe in theistic evolution on the podcast this week. Hence, now I'm doing the podcast this week. Now, with all of that said, maybe a couple of things I want to highlight here. First of all, um, I, I have not tried to put together this very integrated um, kind of rigorous point one, point two, point three, point four, point five footnotes, multiple kind of interactions with text. We're going to spend six hours with me explaining in a systematic way why I kind of lead uh, or lean in this direction. <clears throat> Rather, this is much more like conversational. Like, so let's just pretend that you and I are sitting down uh, out on my back porch and you're like, dude, just tell me what you're thinking here. Like, why do you kind of lean these directions? Why, how do you answer this or this or this? So that's really more the way I'm approaching this today. It is just pretty much like I'm pretending that I'm doing a hot seat Q&A. Somebody's asked me the question and I'm taking more time than normal to kind of unpack some of the things that I've sort of internally worked through on this whole deal. Uh, And so that's the heart behind it. Now, I want to start then in light of that by reminding something I said on Sunday, which to me, what is core when we talk about all the different theories or all the different ideas and all the different speculations on creation, that we maintain that the God of the Bible uh, is the one we're talking about here. And the God of the Bible is the creator of the universe. And with that, he has personally revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And Jesus came, lived, died, and rose uh, to rescue us from uh, our own broken old way sinful life and to rescue us to a new vision for life, which is to bring flourishing 
bless the nations, that whole thing I love to talk about all the time. And we utilize then all of these different methodologies to try to accomplish that mission. So I don't want to be, quote, a scientist and understand the mysteries of the universe simply for my curiosity. But to some degree, go, anytime I can ever leverage that for the betterment of humanity, that's what our, my missional calling is. Or anytime I can point out how that highlights God, that's what my missional calling is. With that, though, I also don't want to shortchange the subject and say, well, every time we run into a mystery in science, I'm just going to say, that's God. God did that, right? I don't know how to deal with the mystery, so I'm just going to conclude the, the, the curiosity with, well, God did that. Because they call this the God of the gaps, that when you're kind of looking at an exploration in a particular field of science and you run into a thing that the pieces don't quite fit together, like I got A and I got C, but B is missing, that that I'm more of the ideology that says don't fill in B with God, say B is still a mystery and we'll keep looking to see if we find B or we can never find B, right? And if you never find B, then you can at least in a very casual way say somehow God bridged the gap between A and C and it's kind of a mystery because we don't know the mechanism that he bridged it with, but I'm not going to just fill in the gap by saying God because the problem with that is, and I agree with some Christians that are in kind of the more theistic evolution space who warn of this, which is if you keep saying, well, God's that gap there and God's that gap there and God's that gap there. And then we get along further in science and we go, oh, there, we just filled in B with a scientific mechanism or we solved that mystery. Then you've removed God from the gap, right? And pretty soon you're never seeing God in it. Because you, you filled it in with God. Now we've shown that God isn't the mechanism for the gap and you reduce kind of the wonder of God over creationism uh, or over creation by doing that. So I'm, I'm not a fan of, you know, the God of the gaps concepts, you know, I kind of go, it's problematic to me. So <clears throat> that's why I think it's always important when we run into things that are yet to be discovered or figured out, just let them be that and let researchers and scientists and everything else keep exploring to figure that out. Because if you think about it, there was like once a time in the human condition where we said that tree over there, God made it. So uh, what's, what's, how, how, what does a tree do? Why does it grow? How does it live? What is it engaged in in the world? We said, I don't know, God did it. It's all about a God thing. And then eventually we cracked open, like, what's a tree do? What's it about? What's its genetic code? How does it convert sunlight to energy? How does it use CO2 and convert it to oxygen? You know, like we went through all that stuff and we realized like, we know exactly how a tree works. We don't have to say God makes trees grow right? We just go, no, there's all these different mechanisms and complexities in play. And that's how a tree grows. Now I still go back to at the end of the day, Hey man, God is the architect of the universe. So in a very generalized sense, yes, God made a tree grow, but in a very scientific sense, there's all these wondrous things in play that are, you know, I mean, just like just the sheer equipment inside a cell. It looks like it's like tractors and trucks and it's moving stuff back and forth. And there's this communication going on inside the cell, outside the cell, the other cell, other cells to make molecules, to make things happen and make, you know, again, water get up the tree and energy get to the branches. And, you know, it's just all that kind of stuff. It's the sugars that are created as it's converting sunlight, like all that stuff. You want to let it be like what it is, which is really cool, right? Like you want to care about it at that level. And that's why I'm kind of a fan of that. So, Clearly, you can tell by my energy level, I get nerded out when I think about how these mechanisms work. And for me, that doesn't make God less. Like I go, now I've answered how everything works in creation, and now it's all internally integrated. Therefore, there's no space for God. I go, you're a pretty brilliant being to make a system that's so internally integrated. It's self-functioning, self-sustaining, self-replicating, self-creating, and you did it with very basic borderline binary code four letters versus two letters, but you get the idea. It's kind of like, you know, the four letters of DNA make up all the organic stuff on this planet. That's a pretty ingenious, you know, kind of uh, architect to come up with something that can just keep self-creating, self-replicating, uh, establishing and spawning new things just with a simple four letter code system, just configured in different ways. Right. So I go, that's to write Sonnets with only four letters of the alphabets, pretty impressive, much less three-dimensional sonnets that are living creatures. It's incredible to me, right? So then with that kind of takes me into the topic then of the day more directly, which is why do I fall then into the theistic evolution camp? Because there's, again, all kinds of camps, right? Uh, and I'm, you know, and I've been open about this ever since at least I've lived in Duval. So for 15 years, remember the first year I was here uh, and, and came to the church. And I mean, I shared a bunch of things in that first year, just like, hey, you got to know who I am, where I'm coming from. You know, I'm kind of an open book on this. I, I really love to be very open about, hey, these are my 
curiosities. These are my questions. These are my problems. These are the things I'm wrestling through. I just really believe in being an open book. I know some people don't always feel comfortable with that, but I'm like, I just, I, I don't like when I don't know what my leaders are thinking about sometimes. And I also find a certain level of freedom when I realize that other leaders are thinking about these things too, or other people are thinking about these things. It's amazing how much over my life I've met people who are like, you know, I've wondered about this too, but I never felt it was safe to share in church that I wondered about these things. Or I thought this too, but I thought I would actually get in trouble or I wouldn't fit in the community if I shared my idea on these things. And I'm like, right, me too. I get it. So let's just be an open, honest community of faith that's pondering and wrestling. And I actually think that's what God wants us to do is anyway. Because here's a fun little fact, just again, before I actually kind of do my dive into evolutionary theory. Um, but the, the there's a story in the Old Testament where Jacob wrestles with an angel. And, uh, you know, he's kind of been a derp most of his life. But the story of Jacob and Esau, Esau is a better person. Like legitimately Esau is the better human being. Jacob is conniving. I always think of those two like Thor and Loki. You know, if you're ever, if you're like a Marvel fan, uh, Jacob is Loki and hundred percent. He's a conniving, lying, thieving, kind of a terrible person, honestly. Uh, and he wrestles with God by the river and he's actually beating, well, it says an angel, but then it says he's wrestled with God. So it's kind of this weird, like, is it an angel? Is it God? I kind of think he wrestles with an angel that is an emissary of God in that sense. So it's like, he's representative of God, but it's an angelic being. It could be like Christ in a pre-incarnate form. We're not really sure. The Bible is sometimes more ambiguous than we care to acknowledge. And that's kind of an ambiguous thing, but no matter what, it has a connection to representation of God somehow. So he wrestles, he's beating this being and the being basically does a cheap shot and cripples him at his hip, touches his hip, cripples him. And that's how the being beats Jacob. And then from that, he's like, okay, dude, you lost, but I'm going to give you a new name. And the new name is then the name Israel. And Israel means wrestles with God. And we might hear that sometimes go, yeah, Israel's always wrestling against God. No, it's wrestles with God and it's a positive. In other words, what the people of God were then going to do and what was a good, healthy, holy endeavor was to always wrestle like to never settle, to always be in every generation wrestling with God, wrestling with the issues of life, wrestling with the implications of, of the book and the lives that they were living and how sometimes it can all be messy. And I'm a big fan of that, that the Christian calling is not to settle, but to wrestle and that we should always be wrestling. We should never just, never just settle and be like, okay, this is no more. We don't wrestle with this, this any longer. And the history of Christianity is just that, right? When you look at all the denominations and schisms and newborn denominations and sub-denominations and everything else, <clears throat> what that is, is people wrestling with the book and wrestling with the implications of Christianity in the real world. <clears throat> and then from that, they get different groupings because they're wrestling. And I'm a fan of the wrestling, right? I know it's sometimes uncomfortable. It's painful. Your hip gets touched and you get crippled from it. Um, but the wrestling's good. So then in light of all of that, and especially as, as the human condition moves forward, there is a wrestling related to how we continue to discover things. And we have these new like aha moments and we see new mysteries revealed in the created world. And then we have to go, oh, what do I do with that? Right. And how do I bring wisdom to bear on that mystery that's now been revealed? Like I'll give you an, like, this is just off the top of my head where it's the intersection of kind of scripture and, uh, and science and the implications, what do you do? Uh, but it's um, like uh, any kind of medical intervention to ensure somebody that isn't able to have kids can have kids because we actually then fertilize an egg and implant it into the woman and we go through that whole artificial process. Like what happened there is we realized, hey, this is how conception happens. And through science, we can re-engineer conception and we can plant these eggs inside of a woman that can't normally get pregnant and now she can get pregnant. And so in this weird sort of way, we have God's thing of, hey, be fruitful and multiply, a biblical idea. And then we have science that says, we've cracked a way to make it possible for women who can't do this to do this thing. And then we got to wrestle with, is that a natural way or an unnatural way? Is that godly or ungodly to go through that process? And initially Christians really wrestled with that and they were very divided about that. And it seems like nowadays, nowadays, most Christians are pretty okay with that whole process, though initially there was a whole lot of bad mojo around that, you know, but this was the, and God's people wrestle. 
they wrestle with the implications of science and scripture and God's created order and God's mandate and is this okay or not okay and everything else. And some Christians still think it's just wrong, but at least we wrestle. Some think it's great. I'm more in the, I think it's great camp, right? That's just me. I know of, I have some friends that think it's honestly really bad and they, they almost equal it to a type of abortion in a different sort of way because you're if you're implanting all of these but you're not hoping they all take, then you're intentionally going down an abortive route. And I'm like, I totally disagree. But again, we wrestle, and that's my idea. We wrestle. So we wrestle through these ideas as well, and this topic is no exception. We wrestle with what what does creation reveal to us, and then when we read the Bible and they seem distant apart, how do we harmonize that? Now, for some, they go, I don't see distant. I just make it really simple, and that's the young earth creationist model where they say the earth was formed about 5,500 years ago, you know, roughly. If you look at the genealogy of the Old Testament, and even if you connect it to the New Testament, <clears throat> and you run it all the way back, it's about 5,500 years from Adam to now foundationally. Uh, and so kind of in light of that, they go, that's how old the earth is. Uh, and then there was just one man, one woman in Eden and all humanity <clears throat> springs from those two. And the story is really simple. Now they acknowledge that the earth and the universe looks old. They go, yes, it does look old because it takes billions of years for light to get to the earth. If you can see a star tonight that is hundreds of millions of light years away or a billion light years away or whatever the numeric distance is, um, they know it took that many years for the light to get here. And so they say God made a mature looking universe. So it looked old from the get go, which is why then in science, they think it's old because it does look old. The way it plays out is old looking. So that's kind of the way they solve that. God just made a mature universe. He made a, a man. He didn't make a baby in Eden. He made a full-grown tree. He didn't make a little shoot or a seedling that was just sprouting. Uh, but actually, they would probably say he did both. He did all the progressions, right, as far as trees and seeds and size of fish and baby calves and big calves and, like, you know, kind of made a blended but fully mature-looking universe. So, of course, science is going to say it looks old, but it's not really old. It's actually young, which is then kind of one of the things like, oh, so God lies to us, makes it look old, deceives us, even though it's really young. And that's a weird debate that happens. I just get my young earth creationists to say, he made him mature. That's it. Um, but that's kind of their vision. And so everything's truncated. Everything's young. Every other view outside of that one, this is going to be, I don't think it's a scandalous thing to say, but every other view, if you're an old earth creationist, if you're a progressive creationist, if you say the earth is 10,000 years, 15,000 years, 30,000 years, anything outside of 5,500 years and six days, you are outside of the biblical text of Genesis 1 and 2. Right? That, that's what I'm going to say for sure. So as soon as say we got to hold to scripture as it's revealed, and I believe yours is 15,000 years old roughly or 10,000 years old, you're out of the text because the text strictly speaking puts it at 5,500 years because you can do the math with the genealogies. So any other extension automatically gets us a little bit out of the text. Now, I shouldn't say 100% out of the text, but it's kind of getting us out of the revealed text of Genesis 1 and 2. Now, I think that text is not talking about material creation of the universe. I think it has a completely different function. I'll get into that in a little bit later in the podcast. But kind of at the at the base level, uh, kind of young earth creationism has has the advantage of just the most plain reading of the text in a Western post-enlightenment mind, that's what you would walk away with, right? Uh, beyond that, you have like kind of old earth creationism or gap theorists is another kind of variation of it where they look and they say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void. And then there was these waters and darkness and deep and the spirit hovering over the waters, that whole story. And then they say there was maybe a big lengthy gap of time. So in other words, God created the universe. It sat there for billions of years, spinning, developing, things crashing into each other, you know, recoalescing, stars dying and exploding and restarting as a second generation or a third generation star. Ours eventually became a third generation star. Our solar system kind of cooled into the format it is. And then at some point, thousands of years ago, roughly, God then did a unique creation on the planet and created everything we see today. So it's kind of like they go, the universe looks old because it actually is old and God let it spin out for a long time and then recently came back around and then kind of recalibrated our planet for life. And it was all instant, spontaneous creation, perhaps even over six days, perhaps over some other length of time, they kind of debate it, but that's kind of your fundamental idea of gap theory or older creationism. You also have in there, and this is where I'm not even, it's always kind of murky to me. I never get quite clarity on it. 
But you have like progressive creationism, and this is sometimes tethered to intelligent design ideas uh, within kind of the Christian science world where they say, you know what, the earth is old, the universe is old, life did begin on the planet 3.5, 3.6 billion years ago, the planet's roughly 4.5 billion years old, um, and there there has been this spontaneous slow progressive progressive creationism uh, over the course of that time. So they go like the Precambrian explosion. We go from very contained base life to this explosion of all this life that happened there. But it wasn't evolutionary explosion. It was just God was every day making hundreds of spontaneous creations, slightly different from the other kind of, you know, if you looked at it, it would almost look like evolution maybe because it seems like there's these progressions of different forms, but that was just God spontaneously creating. And every time there's a new creation on the planet, that's God's spontaneous creation of the thing. It's not evolution. It's not natural selection. It's not just the genetics going wherever it wants to go, but it's God kind of just beep, 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 a new little adaptation or thing to different living creatures. And that's why the explosion is so profound. Like they kind of look and they go, evolution can't explain the the explosion. So we think God is the source of the explosion of the Precambrian event. And then he still continued to spontaneously create all the way to one day there was Adam and Eve and he spontaneously created them. What I never have quite been able to fully understand in the ID department is if there was death all the way to Adam through that whole progressive creationism, because then that addresses the problems that are oftentimes coming my way on being a theistic evolutionist, which is you believe there was death before Adam and Eve, and therefore how could there be death after Adam and Eve? I'll get into that in a minute, but yes, what that does assume, certainly in my position, is there was death before Adam and Eve. I would assume with intelligent design, they they might say the same thing. It, that's where it's a little, some of them seem to, and some of them don't. There seems to be like these murky events at times. Um, so I admit I'm not, I don't want to speak well, I don't know if anybody could speak fully for all ID. I, I think it's just, you know, this is one of those murky points with the ID world for me. Now, I really like the intelligent design crew. I really do. I think uh, of of everything outside of my belief in theistic evolution, I think they're the ones that are the most seriously trying to look at science in the process because I think there's kind of two ways that people look at this. The Bible trumps science or science trumps the Bible. I think they're trying to say, no, it's the Bible and science as best as we can. But they, in that, I think there's there's a certain level of kind of, Everybody comes with a bias for sure. I'm admitting even my position has a bias. Just a straight up atheist evolutionist has a bias. Everybody has a bias in their approach. Um, but I think with, within that model, it's because we're saying we got to figure out how to really buckle the book of Genesis and maybe some of the stuff in Romans together with science. So we got to come up with a way to solve that a little bit more. Um, now, here's why I don't land on the intelligent design idea. Or let me say this a little different. I believe God is an intelligent designer. For sure. Um, the thing about intelligent design, for me at least, that makes me go, can't quite get on board, is an underlying premise to it. And I, and I get part of what this is. I actually think in a weird sort of way, I probably, I'm like a first cousin to intelligent design in the way I kind of look at some of this stuff. But there's one little part of this that kind of gets it off for me a little bit, which is why I go more into the theistic evolution camp. But under ID, they might look at something like the eyeball. This was Michael B. He kind of really kind of nailed this one down in Darwin's black box. But uh, he would look at the eyeball and say, there's no way that you get this outcome of the complexity of an eyeball and the ability to focus and process and everything else. You never get to this accidentally. Like, you know, the blind watchmaker, so to speak, of evolution would not end at this conclusion because you would need to know certain things down the road and adapt those in to get to that conclusion. Therefore, the eyeball is so complex, it needs a designer because this can never just happen. Even though they would acknowledge that DNA is pretty radical, it relentlessly seeks life, it's constantly mutating and adapting related, not related to environments, but rather environments are are put upon the mechanism and then certain things thrive in those environments, certain things don't, and they die off the things that thrive, they then multiply and they continue to procreate and continue to drive that adaptation in the environment more because it's suited to the environment. That's all kind of evolutionary theory. But they'd say the eyeball is just so advanced and complex. You're not going to get there without somebody ensuring we get to an eyeball. Like the designer goes, don't forget step 42. Normally you would never choose to put step 42 in there because you have to do some weird stuff to do step 42. And hence, because you would never get there just organically, accidentally, you have to be intentionally doing it. It can't just be spontaneous happen right? Hopefully you get that. Like a mousetrap. To get to a finished mousetrap, you have to do some wonky things that you you could never do unless you had a 
overall vision in mind to do it. You would never have an accidental mousetrap or an accidental pocket watch or whatever metaphor you want to use. The only hangup I have with that, the, I don't have any hangup at that part, actually. Um, but the the premise of it is complex things are so complex, you must have a designer or you would never have those things. So they say complexity requires a designer, right? That's the idea. Complexity requires a designer. The retort to that, oftentimes from agnostic and atheist sources, though my retort is, well, I have the same retort, uh, which is fancy. I'm using the word retort. But my retort to that is uh, God is complex. So if you must have a designer to create complex things and God is complex, then God must have a designer. Now they'll say, no, 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 God's just always been. But see, it's kind of a cheat. Like you're saying, you will never have a complex thing without a designer. God's a complex thing, but he doesn't need a designer. And that's why I get lost on it. And I go, yeah, it just doesn't compute. I don't, I, my thing is always, I, I, there's a statement, I think I heard it from R.C. Sproul years ago. You can't attribute nonsense to God, <laughs> you know? Uh, in, in, in the way we kind of see this in some theological realms, it's God is bound by logic just as the rest of us, right? And so they'd say, God can't do the illogical. I think that's more quote, Sproul's quote. I would say, God just can't do nonsensical things. And to me, it's nonsensical to say you can't have anything that is complex without a creator, but God is complex and therefore God doesn't need a creator though because he's always been. Like, I get it that it's, I believe that. I believe that God's just always been. But because of that, I go, you can have a complex thing without a creator. And so if you can have at least one example of a complex thing without a creator, you could then by extension have two. You could have a universe that forms up without a complex creator and you can have a complex universe because our creator is complex and doesn't have a creator. So that's why I'm not in on that. And it then draws me to theistic evolution. Finally, we get there and I'm like 26 minutes in. This is terrible. Um, this is, I knew this was going to be a longer podcast. So I was kind of aware of that in the beginning. Uh, so here's what I want to say about this really fast. What it doesn't mean to me, what it does mean. Uh, I know growing up for the longest time, the word evolution was a synonym for atheism or a synonym for humanism or naturalism, the disbelief in God. If you're an evolutionist, you are by saying that, saying you don't believe in God. And I'm not sure how that came to be that automatically to believe Darwinian evolution is to not believe in God because at the end of Origin of Species, Darwin actually kind of, I don't know, kind of commits the book to God, right? I don't know if you go to the last page of the Origin of Species, you know, he belonged to a church. He's buried in a church. Well, he was buried in a church front yard. I think he's now at Westminster Abbey. I'm not positive on that, but I think they moved his body. Uh, but he was buried in this church cemetery. Um, what kind of a relationship Darwin had to God? I don't really know that. I don't know if it was all that profound. I don't think he visited church, but he regularly tithed. Um, but he does talk about, you know, kind of some tribute to God and his realization of uh, his theory, right? And so th there's kind of that part. And therefore, I even look at that and go, you don't have to be godless to be evolutionary. In fact, there are a number of different scientists in the world. My favorite, probably the most notable would be like Francis Collins that ran the Human Genome Project. And he's written a lot of books on being a Christian and being an evolutionary theorist and everything else. And there's a number of guys out there, some Catholic, some Protestant, some Anglican, all kinds of stuff that you have a lot of people out there that are Christians that believe in the evolutionary model. Um, on the flip of that, though, I've never seen somebody that believes in young earth creationism that is of a non-faith tradition. So in other words, you would think that if there was enough kind of sizable science there, you would have disbelieving people that would be young earth creationists. They go like, it's not a creationism. They just, the earth is only about 5,500 years old. Here's the, all the physical science evidence for that. You just don't see that. There's always the, the kind of the, the connectivity between faith and then trying to to solve these scientific implications kind of from the root of faith as opposed to, uh, you know, kind of the inverse. And so this is where I go. I see a lot of Christian people that believe in evolution. I don't see any non-faith people that believe in young earth creationism, for example. And that says something to me. I go, okay, you can clearly be a theistic evolutionist somehow in there and it's, and it's doable. And there's a lot of people it's doable. I think even the Catholic church, its position now is theistic evolution, or at least you are more than free to believe that in the Catholic church. It's kind of been codified as acceptable by way of doctrine and orthodoxy. Um, and Protestant ranks, it depends on where you fall. If you're in John MacArthur's church, you're not saved. You know, like li literally you don't understand the gospel. You don't believe the Bible and you're not saved unless you believe young earth creationism, because as he says, science has nothing to say on creation whatsoever. Probably is taking a heart medication though, you know, to keep himself alive. I'm like, okay, you go after it, John. Um, but in other ranks, you're totally fine. I think in the Anglican tradition, you're totally fine. Certainly in the Catholic tradition, you're fine. Some Protestant traditions, you're fine. That kind of thing. So 
Anyway, evolution is not a synonym for a disbelief in God. Evolution is a descriptor of a mechanism. And the mechanism, again, is related to how DNA relentlessly seeks life. It will mutate and find a way to spawn new life. Now, the the downside of that is that if that new mutation is not well suited to the environment it finds itself in, it will die, right? It might die in the womb of an animal. It might die when it hits the real world or whatever else. Other times, though, the environment changes and a mutation comes forward and that mutation is better suited to the way the environment's changing. And from that, then it can thrive and survive. That's the survival of the fittest. So if you have climate change in a certain part of the world 300,000 years ago and there was a mutation of an animal that wasn't very hairy and one of the pups was born and it was hairier and the climate was starting to cool, that pup had an advantage in the mutation to thrive in an environment where maybe its other siblings were not going to. So then eventually mates with another one of those little animals at some point in time and they have an offspring and it happens to be hairier because one of its parents was hairy and then the environment continues to cool and now those pups are all having an advantage in that environment. The one breed dies off, the other breed begins to survive and that's your evolutionary model, right? Now I'm not getting in all the macro versus micro because for me it's just all evolution, Um But that's the way the system works. And so the system is always generating different mutations of life. And so for me, I go, that is very divine. In other words, our God is the God of the living. Our God is the God of life. Again, I'm a big fan of when you look at the gospel of John and John's letters, he's talking about life a lot, right? Like that's one of the dedicated themes. And so it wouldn't surprise me that God embeds into the the organic living world a mechanism that relentlessly creates life in all kinds of diverse forms. Now the environment might then produce out of that death, but the mechanism is a life-giving mechanism. It's not a death-generating mechanism, which is kind of one of my criticisms when people say, evolution is all about death and decay. And I'm like, no, the mechanism, the thing that's happening at the organic level in the DNA, it only relentlessly is seeking some format of life. Now that may or may not thrive, but it's formatting life alone. And then other conditions, you could even say the fallen conditions of creation, if you want to, that's what produces the death push against that life giving engine, right? What I think is cool, just as a speculation, and I do love to speculate, is that in the new heaven and new earth, Earth, you will not have external factors that suppress that engine. That engine will just be on without restraint or without limitation. So I actually go in the new heaven and new earth. The reason you'll have radical expansions of creation and radical new forms of life is exactly because God's engine will be unrestrained. Uh, it won't be bound by the limits of this this world as we know it. That to me, I think is just pretty cool. If you're somebody that enjoys a little bit of sci-fi and the idea of you know going to different planets and have all kinds of different plant life and animal life and just teeming with things like you're like, I want to go to Pandora. Maybe there's a Pandora out there in the future because evolution just has a relentless spawning of life on some moon someplace that God creates. I don't know. Speculatory, but kind of cool nonetheless. So evolution's an engine. I like the engine of evolution um, because, again, it relentlessly seeks life. And I think that's evidenced in the creation around us. We're always seeing weird little mutations. Oftentimes the mutations are not helpful, but sometimes they are. Like in other words, um, because the environment isn't primed for certain adaptations, uh, those things just can't survive, which is kind of a tragic reality. But um, again, when it would be understand, I think it'd be really kind of cool. So anyway, that's kind of where I see this idea then of evolution. And that what therefore what it means to me as we get into now the book of Genesis is that I clearly believe um, there was life and death and decay and rebirth and everything else for a very long time before we get to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter two, technically. And then with that, I also want to be clear and, and I want to say that I believe that there were homo, homo sapiens and Neanderthals and all of that before we get to the story of Genesis two. So if I used a very loose term and forgive me for the loose term, but if I say there were upright bipedal humanoids uh, that were self-aware and gathering in clans and hunting and having families and burying their dead and creating religious artifacts that were on walls and in caves and in trinkets and everything else for 
maybe 100,000 years before the story of Adam and Eve, maybe limited down to 50 or 40,000, 25,000, whatever it is, that there were people in the Americas and there were people in Asia and there were people in Africa and everything else. There's these humanoids upright doing things, scattering around the planet before Adam and Eve. I would say that's the position I do hold. I, I kind of believe that space. And I believe Genesis chapter four does too. We'll get there in a minute. So anyway, uh, that's what I think. And then at some point in the system, where Adam and Eve intersects with the story. Uh, and so maybe even with that, I want to say, therefore, I think dinosaurs all went the way of the dodo bird 63 million years ago, roughly. Um, great asteroid hits the planet. They're gone. Reboot. Get up to today. That's why we don't have, uh, like, um, dinosaur bones buried alongside lion bones. Like, some people will say, well, the flood leveled the playing field and the dinosaurs died in the flood, as did all the other animals. Uh, but to my knowledge, at least, we've never found in the same strata, like, uh, you know, kind of Jurassic era bones right alongside like horses and leopards and lions and, you know, that kind of thing. You know, like the woolly mammoths and saber tooths and th- those were pretty recent. Humans killed those things off, you know, in the last 20 to 40,000 years. And so that's kind of that whole thing. They're not dinosaurs, you know, but dinosaurs, long time ago, dead. Buried very independent of what we see in the animal kingdom today. Uh, therefore, I don't think that T-Rex was in Eden with Adam and bunnies and they're all eating a salad together. Like, I don't think that was the case. And I'll get into the problem of if if it was young earth and animals and Eden and what happened in the fall. I'll get into that in a minute because I think there's a problem there too, right? Because clearly I'm just sharing my problems. Um, so anyway then, uh, all this life, death, decay, humanoids doing stuff. But then Adam, what makes Adam unique to the narrative as this is where God begins his covenantal relationship with human beings. So Adam is a unique figure. Eve is a unique figure. I'm not trying to necessarily convert Adam and Eve to a tribal society or whatever else I'm comfortable with. I, I, I leave a little bit of room open for like, I get that there may be a certain level of intention to the story that's not meant for me to like try to pinpoint all of the exact things as precise, exact figures and exact precise locations. And like, I'm a little bit more open to the idea that Genesis 2 is, has some ambiguity to it. In some ways. And so I'm open to that. But that for me, I can go like, no, Adam is a unique, spontaneous figure in the story. And God puts his neshama, his breath of life in him, and he becomes an image bearer. Right. And that affords him a relationship with God is unique. And what's interesting about Adam is he's established outside of Eden, but then brought into Eden, given this neshama breath of life, image bearing thing in Eden. And then he's told, hey, I want you to expand the borders of Eden. I want you to protect it and to keep it because this is unique sanctuary, almost as though it is a missional launch point for the world. But I also want you to go and I want you to subdue and have dominion over the wild beyond Eden, which is Genesis chapter one at the end. So subdue and, and have dominion is the objective. Push the borders of Eden, guard Eden in the process. And then what's central to Eden? A tree called life. Here goes that life thing again. So you have the tree of life there in Eden. Here's what's interesting about the tree of life and its relationship to Adam. And you may be surprised by this, but I think the evidence is really clear. Before Adam sinned, Adam could still die. I'm gonna say that again. Before Adam sinned, Adam could still die. The reason I say that is because life was not inherent to Adam. Adam didn't just have eternal capacity for living because he hadn't sinned yet. He, he stays alive because he has access to the tree of life, which is why in Genesis chapter three, after he falls, after there's a sin and God has to kick him out of Eden, why does God kick him out of Eden? He says, lest he eat of the tree of life and live forever. In other words, Adam's fallen state, had he still had access to the tree of life, would have meant perpetual living. So he was never independently an eternal being until he sinned. He was also always dependent on the tree of life to sustain his life essence, right? Where I then speculate, and it's just speculation, so I want you to understand that. I see the first Adam and then Jesus, the second Adam, because that's what Paul says in Romans. There's a first and second Adam. So Jesus is doing what the first Adam failed to do. What did the first Adam fail to do? He failed to do what the second Adam does. And the second Adam does what? He exports life to the world, right? That's really what the gospel is all about, the exporting of life to the world. Now, you're going to physically die, but he can export spiritual life to you in this world. Adam's job was to export life to the world. And in that context, I actually think, for us, it is actually physical too, because there's a resurrection. For Adam, it was to export the essence of the tree of life to the wilds beyond Eden. 
So he's enjoying life and life eternal, provided he has access to the tree. He has a relationship with God. As he exports that to the world, other people can have a relationship with God and they can have life too. So the world that is good and very good, but it still has death, dying, and decay because it's been doing that for millions of years billions, in fact, uh, now Adam's job is to bring a reclamation project, to be a missionary out into the world around him and to bring this tree of life. Now, what happens? Adam and Eve, they go, well, there's another tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And again, I think a lot of this is kind of architectural storytelling too, right? So it's kind of like getting over the top of it like a parable in some ways and saying they wanted something out of due season. God would have given them knowledge, Right? He would have given them that understanding, but it was premature for them to do it on their own. Because of that, they get banned from the garden. They're out in the wilds like everybody else, and they don't have access to life. And eventually, after a thousand years, roughly, they die. Now, here's the other thing about that that I think is really critical. Back in Genesis 2, and then kind of bleeding into Genesis 3, God tells the man, do not eat of this tree, for the day you eat, you will surely die. So it's a promise. And we love to say God is a promise maker and God doesn't break his promises. So God promises Adam, warns and promises that on the very day you eat, you will die. Well, then we go into chapter three, the very day they eat, they don't die. And they don't die the next day or the next day. And they don't die a year from then or 10 years from then or 50 or 100 or 500 years from then. They don't, they're the, like among the longest living beings in the story of the Bible. So it begs the question, did God lie or does God not keep his promises? And I go back to, well, God doesn't lie and God doesn't break his promises. So there's another layer in that story somehow that doesn't require me to say that either God lied or God doesn't keep his promises. Now you can say, well, he was merciful, right? But he promised them, if you do this, this will happen. My thing would be, it did happen. In other words, they didn't die physically, but rather they died spiritually. They died in their relationship to God. And the implication of that is they were banned from access to life. And therefore, by extension, they physically die. And by extension, the hope of the world of having life brought out of Eden by the man and the woman is now extinguished. And now all creation is under this curse of we're going to stay in this mode of death because the one that was supposed to bring life from Eden to the world failed to do so. So all creation now had an opportunity. There was this moment where there was going to be transformation, but because the first Adam fails, that transformation is side railed and death just stays in the equation. And it's even worse then because there was a chance for renewal. There was a chance for the change. It's one thing if you've never known the difference. It's another to have the difference on your doorstep. It's going to change everything. And then the dude that's running the program for his own self-interest and his own sense of weakness blows it up and makes it terrible for all parties involved. That is brutal. He was the hope of creation and he failed in his duties and responsibility. Thus, death comes to all. Kind of Paul's saying about that, right? So again, I think it's the spiritual element of death in Genesis 2 that's in play and 3, less the physical death because they didn't physically die for a very long time, right? So that's kind of the warning that's in there. So then how it deals with Paul kind of doing the one Adam and two Adam and everything else. This is why some people say you have to believe that all humanity came from Adam for Paul's words to work in, in like Romans, for example. And I go, I don't think it requires that. I think it's a little easier that way. Like I want to be clear that all the systems have problems. Um, and, and I, but I think you, you can accommodate that and say, no, it, it is spiritual. And we agree that it's still spiritual today. And even you and I, we agree that when we come to faith in Christ, we have new life in Christ, but we're still going to die in this world. There's this weird relationship to what life is really about in the Bible. And it isn't always just whether you're going to die or not. It's not, if you have life in Christ, you have eternal life. Your body will kick the bucket at some point here. That's true. But you have eternal life. And then one day he's going to resurrect you and reconnect all of that. So I just think there's a lot more complexity to the idea of what was going on in Genesis 2 and 3 and what the death was in Genesis 2 and 3. And what it took to have life in Genesis 2 and 3 was not inherent to, to man before the fall. It was inherent to God's gift of the tree, both sides pre and post fall. Man had life or didn't have life because he didn't have access to the tree. Hopefully you tracked with that. All right. So that kind of solves, to me at least, a little bit, or at least gives some architecture to the problems of the the, the death and life and what happened in, in Genesis, that kind of thing. Now, let's jump out of Genesis 3 a little bit and into Genesis 4. So if you're a literalist, and at this point, there was a man, a woman, trees, a snake that talks, which by the way, in the text, 
It does not say it's the devil ever. In fact, we nowhere in the Bible would you assume the certain serpent was Satan. Nowhere would you assume that uh, until you get to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And even there, it's 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 kind of like an impassing remark. You know, that serpent from old, the devil. Um, which is why it's interesting in Jewish theology and tradition, they just said the snake is a snake. <laughs> you know, they, they never equated it with Satan in any way because they're like, no, it was just the the shrewdest of all the beasts of the field and the consequence he has a crawl in his belly for the rest of his life. They just never equated that with Satan. That's just a fun little theological nugget that sometimes we fail to realize. The other thing that's interesting is that in the Jewish tradition, the whole of the Old Testament, it never blames Adam for sin. Matter of fact, Adam almost never comes up after Genesis and they never go, oh, the problem for all of our plight and, and weakness as humans is Adam back in the book of Genesis. Like they don't do that either. Um, you know, it's just weird. He's virtually absent from the story. And for them, for the most part, they're like, no, the serpent wasn't the devil. That's silly. The serpent was just an animal that happened to have the capacity to talk. But they also see it a little bit more as like an Aesop fable. It's a true story, but in a kind of a mythological architecture uh, to give some sensibility to their origin story. Oh, which wait, I got to talk about the origin story. Forgot about that. I'll do that before I go into the Genesis 4 thing. Um, so because of that then though, and that whole the way the story starts and Genesis chapter 1, the way the Israelites realistically are hearing Genesis 1 for the first time is very different than what we want Genesis 1 to do for us today in a post-enlightenment uh, kind of scientifically minded world where we want Genesis 1 to solve our scientific questions. Uh, Israel did not have those questions for which God was writing answers. God was writing Genesis 1 for a completely different intention. Israel would heard it so differently than we hear it that it almost is hard to bridge the gap. All right, so let me do this really quick. Now that I'm at 45 minutes, this is going to be like over an hour podcast. Um so, uh, when God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12 and says, you're going to be my nation and I'm going to make you like the sands of the sea and I'm going to bless the nations through you. That's about all the doctrinal concept they could have. That's about all the revelation that's really given to them. Like there's not a lot of God, Abraham talking about deep detailed things and, you know, kind of a systematic theology. It's just very simple. Uh, and then hundreds of years go by, the Israelites end up in Egypt, they end up in slavery, and then God raises up Moses to let my people go, right? When they leave Egypt, this is finally where you're going to have the first words of what eventually becomes scripture somehow put into play, probably orally, initially, eventually it gets recorded and passed along. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy all come much later after Abraham, after coming out of Egypt, and, and there is... Um, a worldview that Israel's been immersed in for a very long time. They live in Egypt, they're slaves in Egypt, and their job is to build stuff. And they're building stuff in relationship to the gods of Egypt. So even if they're building a grain silo, that is connected to the god of wheat and the god of the field and the god of cattle. And then that all happens because the sun god makes sure that there is sun and the rain god ensures water for the crops. And the river god sometimes gets capricious and floods the valleys and floods the, the places where you're growing stuff. And so you're angry at the river god and the ocean gods are freaky because they're chaos. And the chaos monster of the ocean is really daunting to the psyche of human beings, right? And so for them, the created order was not like the sun is a burning ball of gas, 93 million miles away and the moon is you know this chunk of rock and dust that controls the tidal forces of the planet and like for them the moon was a god and it had a personality and it thought and it didn't like you and the sun was a god and it was all powerful and it was constantly shining upon you but it could scorch you if you wanted to because it's always thinking about how you're just a slave person now of course there's also pharaoh who's a god and he's kind of like the sun god but he's different but he's no different than the sun they're both self-aware beings that rule in the world, right? So the Israelites were, were polytheistic, all right? They believed in many gods just as the Egyptians did, which is why they're always following many gods throughout their history, right? And all of these, you know, kind of created order components, crops, oceans, rivers, orbiting bodies, stars. They thought stars were like angelic beings. Uh, you see that in the scripture. Um, for them, that's what science was. Science was theology in that sense or dogma of some kind, metaphysics. And so when then Genesis 1 and you read it and you're like, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And you see this word, he separated this and he separated this and he separated this. Every day he separates day from night, land from sea, these animals from those animals. That word is a familiar word in the um, creation stories that were circulating the Mediterranean world, kind of the 
the fertile crescent plain where all of creation was a story of separation. So in other religious formats, it was conflict between the gods and they would, one God would kill the other God and rip its body apart. And when they rip the body apart, that's the heavens and the earth rip the body apart. And that's the land and the sea, or you rip the body apart and that's the sun and the moon, you know? And, and then they were all personalities that were at war with one another. Well, now God comes in with a story and he says, you know, the sun, I just separated the day from the night. I had control over that. And the sun and the moon, I just kind of did that. And they do what I tell them to do. I command the sun to do this. I command the moon to do that. I command the stars to shine in the night sky. I command water and land to separate. And they just separate. And the Israelites are going to hear that and say, our God is the God over all other gods, right? Like that's what they're going to learn. They're not going to be like, Oh, so the created order was on day one. You made day and night. Like that, they're not thinking that way. They're like, you have command over light and dark. Wow. There's no God that has command over both light and dark, but our God has command over both, you know? And so he's suddenly giving them a different vision. And then at the end of that part of Genesis one, where he says, and then let us make man in our image and our likeness. That is the most radical thing in Genesis 1 because for the most part, the way human beings understood the gods is that the gods saw humanity as slaves. And then the Israelites go, of course, we're the slaves of a god. We're the slaves of the god who is Pharaoh and we're slaves of the different, you know, kind of elemental gods. We're just slaves and they look down on us. And again, even in those mythologies, the human beings were made of spit and blood mixed with dirt to form human beings, which is very reminiscent of God, you know, forms man out of the dust of the earth. It's those same kind of ideas. They're kind of familiar. They feel like they're breathing the same air. Um, and so with that, though, for God to then flip the script and say, but you Israelites, you're made in my image and likeness. They're suddenly like, well, we thought the gods just made us as slaves out of spit, blood, and water, and mud to use us. Now you're saying we're like you, and you like us, and we're supposed to go do things in your image in this world, and we're to materialize your internal essence in our external world through what we do? What? So it's pretty radical that way. So reading of Genesis 1 for an Israelite way back in the day is not... It's not even trying to address our scientific questions. That's where I'm kind of like, I don't think it really, it's not speaking to science as we wanted to. It's speaking to, to theology as they needed to hear it and needed to understand it. And it causes them to resonate with who their God is in relationship to what they thought the gods were up to that point. Sorry, I meant to deal with Genesis 1, forgot to, just remembered before I went into Genesis 4, but that's a way to read Genesis 1. And it's not the only way to read Genesis 1. I mean, again, clearly there's a bunch of different ways that people read it. I just think it's the one that makes the most sense to me based on near ancient, near, uh, ancient near, near Eastern mythologies of the day and how the Israelites realistically heard that story. In fact, I've used kind of the illustration that if a three-year-old comes and says, where do babies come from? And the answer is mommy's tummy. That is a perfectly good answer for the way they're asking that question in the framework that they're approaching it. If a 30-year-old comes to their parents and says, where do babies come from? And you answer mommy's tummy, you are doing that 30-year-old child a huge disservice because that is not really the answer to the place where that question comes from for them. Genesis chapter one is dealing with the three-year-olds. It's not dealing with the 30-year-olds. They're not saying, God, how did you create the material universe? They're not even asking a question. They just come out of a world where the gods, which are all the elements, have suppressed them. And God's like, can I tell you, I control all of those elemental spirits. I control all of the gods. Everything that you think rules over your life, I rule over your life. And in that, I give you value where they just give you nothing but grief. That's pretty powerful stuff. I think that's even more powerful than trying to get Genesis 1 to fit into my scientific equations. So there you go. Genesis 1. Now, let me jump to Genesis 4 really quick. And I got to accelerate this now because we are 52 minutes and uh, it just is what it is. I hope you're enjoying it. I hope at least you're like, oh, kind of curious. Don't agree or do agree or sort of agree. But at least you're going like, hey, I just appreciate the conversation. So um, Genesis 4, this goes into why I think there's other people. So in the story, if you're just being technical about it, there's a man, there's a woman, they're kicked out of this space. They no longer have access to ongoing life. So they're going to decay and die at some point over the course of time. They uh, have an intimate relationship as man and wife. They have a child and they have another child. In the story, in Genesis 4, there's only four beings in the story that are human beings. Man, wife, son, son, Cain and Abel. Then for some spat that we don't fully understand the background of, it just appears that Abel's sacrifice was more worthy to God than Cain's sacrifice. Cain in jealousy kills his brother Abel. At that point in the story, there's three people. There's not five, 10, 50, if we say, but you know, Adam and Eve had other kids. They're not there. They never appear till Genesis chapter five. It doesn't say then Adam knew his wife and they had sons and daughters till Genesis five. Genesis four, four people, one's dead, three people. 
That's what you have that part of the story. Well, then God comes to Cain. He's like, bro, you're in trouble. You're going to have to be a wanderer. And, and literally what it says in Hebrew is you're going to be a wanderer who goes to the land of wandering. So the land of Nod is the, is the land of wandering. And he will go as a wanderer, which is an offshoot of the word Nod. So you're going to be like Nod and Nod kind of idea. A little bit was what it is. So you're going to be a wanderer and Nod. And what is Cain's response to God? God, don't do this to me because people are going to know that I killed my brother and they're going to want to enact vengeance on me for killing my brother. Here is the big question. Who are these people that he's worried about hurting him for killing his brother? Who is this group of people that he's concerned about? Because in the story, there's only three people, Adam, Eve, and now only Cain. There is nothing in the story about brothers and sisters that are all waiting to kill their brother for killing their other brother. It doesn't say they had more brothers and sisters and kids, not till the next chapter. So the question becomes, who is Cain freaked out about? That's kind of question one, which is why I go, there were other humanoid, homo sapiens, whatever you want to call them, uh, outside of the garden that Adam was supposed to bring life to, but didn't because he failed in his responsibility to maintain the covenant that gives him life. Therefore, he's banished. Uh, But that's who Cain's worried about. So God's like, dude, I'm going to put a mark on you so nobody will harm you. So now you get the mark of Cain, which sadly in Christian um, uh, American colonial doctrine and theology, they said that was Cain was turned a black man. So even in the Schofield reference Bible, when you look at Genesis chapter four, like the original revealing of the school reference Bible, they actually in a footnote say the, the, the mark of Cain is the curse of Cain, which is being basically black. He was the first African-American in the Bible and he's cursed because he's black. And that was partly put in there because they were still supportive of slavery, as was Schofield in his reference Bible. This is that tragic intersection of you can make the Bible hate a people group if you want. And it's a really convenient way to do it. And so they did it. So if you can find one of the original references in the Schofield reference Bible, Cain got turned black and that's why he's a lesser person in essence, because that afforded them the theology they wanted to continue their chattel slavery practices in the American colonies. Well, not even that point, the American states, because Schofield really doesn't roll into about the 1850s. So it's not just colonial. It really is at that point embedded American kind of life at that juncture is all in there. So there's a little freebie because you showed up. So anyway, King gets this mark. And then what's he do? He takes his wife with him and goes to the land of Nod. Who's his wife? He's got people he's freaked out about, and he's got a wife he's taking with him. Who's his wife? And you go, well, that was his sister. Ooh, at more than one level. Ooh, because A, it doesn't say he has a sister. In the story, there's Adam and Eve and just Cain now. Right? If you're just looking literally at the story, and you don't leave the story in any way. But now you've got this question. You're worried about people, and you've got a wife. The other part is Moses makes it very clear. You cannot marry your wife in the law. The same guy that writes Genesis writes the law. We go, well, at that point, the genetic code was pure. He was allowed to marry his wife. It's the only way you could do it. And therefore it's permissible. Moses knows he's going to write about laws about you can't marry your sister. So that he puts no footnote that this dude would marry his sister is kind of odd. The fact that he's marrying his sister would be kind of odd. It'd be frowned upon. Uh, There's all kinds of stuff there. And there's no sister in the story. So it's an assumption. That's what I'm saying. There's all these assumptions. He's worried about his other brothers and sisters. That's an assumption to the story. The text doesn't have that. But he then leaves, goes to the land of Nod, and you know what it says? He builds a city. How do you build a city with just your wife and yourself, right? And he's a wanderer away from his family. Let's say he has a bunch of brothers and sisters, but he's, he's not interacting with them because they would kill him. That's why he's wise. Mark, so they don't kill him, but he builds a city. You don't need a city if there's two of you. And you don't build a city if it's just you and your wife. If Ellen and I wander to some strange land, we're not building a city. At best, we're building a lean-to. And if we get really good, we might build a tent over the years, right? We're not building a city. If we got really sophisticated, we're building a mud hut, right? But he builds a city, which assumes at least that you've got bodies to populate and construct a city. All of that to say is that the Bible writer of Moses does not, he doesn't wonder like, hey, does this all sound cohesive, right? He's just like, here's the story. And I think in that then, it certainly assumes that there was a population beyond Adam and Eve. Therefore, the story of Adam and Eve and that whole thing is the start of a story of a family and a family that God is using to bring forth eventually this lineage of Abraham to bless the nations. It's not the only family. It's the family that God initially starts the relationship with. It's the family that God puts his image 
in, and they are to then be image bearers of this new agenda of God for the world to reclaim it. That's kind of your idea then in Genesis 4 with those people. And you're just acknowledging that, hey, it already assumes, for no better way of putting it, Gentiles outside of the Jewish lineage. And the Jewish lineage is, in essence, starting with Adam and moving forward, but it's to touch the Gentiles that are outside of that structure. And a lot of Israelites and a lot of rabbis have kind of done work in this that says, really what you see in Genesis in particular and the first 11 chapters is a mirroring of the repeated habit of Israel. So Israel enters the land, they sin, they're expelled from the land. Adam enters into Eden, he sins, he's expelled from Eden. They're left to wander just like the Israelites have to wander in the desert, that there's parallels to this. So part of the purpose of Genesis 1 through 11 is like a warning, reminder, reflective thing on the repeated cycle of Israel. It's embedded in their origin story, right? Acceptance, rebellion, expulsion, but then in that recollection, you know, and so all of that is kind of in there too. And so um, maybe that's part of the way that one can sort of read Genesis and we don't have to be as narrow as some of the ways we tend to want to force it into asking or answering the questions that we're asking today. So that's kind of in there too. So that kind of, that at least for me, that's kind of how I've worked through some of that. And it's still exploration. I still wrestle through it. It's not concluded, right? And there's still things that I'm trying to figure out better, you know? But in light of that, I go, man, it gives me some peace to say there is this other way of reading it. There's another way of reading the story. In the story, there's actually markers that there's more to the story than I assume. There's more population that's there. And then in that, it's reading the story as a mere, not only of Israel's repeated cycle, but it also reads the story of how the first Adam was meant to be a missionary of bringing life to the world and failed. The second Adam, as Paul calls him, who is Christ, succeeds where Adam fails. And so it bridges the gap of those two stories. And it reminds me that this has always been a story of the gospel. And it's always a story of God progressively reclaiming all creation, which is then even Romans 8, like this is what God's doing. He's progressively reclaiming all of creation. And we're a part of that. This is in fact why I'm also post-millennial, Different topic, I think I dealt with that like a few podcasts back, where I believe that God is reclaiming all things because he is the God of progressively reclaiming all things. It's what he does. Uh, It's going with Eden with a tree and it goes to the great city of God where the garden is in the city and we're living between those bookends. Pretty cool stuff. All right, I think I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to just make sure really quick and check my notes. I had just a couple of things here that I wanted to talk about. Oh, one last thing and then I'll wrap it up. Uh, I I said this earlier and I didn't come back around to it, Um, but it was in relationship to um, all of the uh, animal life that would have been before the fall versus after the fall and and more the like a young earth creation is a model. Let's say I'll use that one because it's kind of the cleanest one. It's the most opposite of the model I kind of hold to. in that one, you know, God made all the animals and then Adam sins. And before Adam sinned, all the animals were vegetarians. Adam and Eve were vegetarians. All the animals, lion and lamb hung out together, chilling, you know, serpents and, and you know, baby bunnies just would tickle each other, whatever. I don't know, right? So the T-Rex, all the dinosaurs were there and the T-Rex was eating lettuce um, and all that kind of thing. And then after Adam sinned, then suddenly it was like everything became predator prey and, and that kind of relationship unfolded. The, the thing I always struggled with in that is saying, well, then whatever the animals were in Eden, none of them are around today. Like no animal from the pre-fall Eden exists in our world as we know it. They all went extinct in essence. And we're looking at a completely different animal kingdom than the kingdom before the fall. And here's what I mean by that. Um, most every animal on the planet is wired for this evolutionary system. In other words, because the environment is conducive to adaptation or adaptations get in, you know, kind of either succeed or fail based on the environment around it. Animals that are born with certain adaptations blend in better than others that don't, or they animals born with certain uh, predator instincts or skill sets are going to be more um, superior than ones who do not. So with that, uh, if you think about before Adam, if it was this, all the animals hanging out together, then you wouldn't have fangs and you wouldn't have quills and you wouldn't have body armor and you wouldn't have blending in hair schemes and you wouldn't have anything that gave advantage in that either elusiveness or predatorial nature in animals. That would have been just not there. So porcupines had no use of quills. In fact, it would be in the way and eagles would have no use of talons necessarily. Um, 
if the dinosaurs were there, an Ankylosaurus didn't need a big plate of armor and a club tail, and T-Rex didn't need those ripping sharp teeth. You know, I mean, you can kind of go down the, the road and understand what I'm kind of saying there is that the animal world would have been – would all of that stuff would have been unnecessary. Now, you could say God put it there for creativity. He wanted fangs and razor-sharp claws, and he wanted poison and skunk stink and all those kinds of things. But, like, why have an animal with poison – if it's not going to use the poisons, you know, or why have an animal with some kind of offensive or defensive weapon uh, if it is just going to be eating grass and ferns, you know, that kind of thing. And so the animal kingdom went through such a radical adaptation uh, after the fall. We can't even really talk about the animals of the pre-fall state as being the animals we see today. They're too dramatically different. Um, now, maybe from that you go, well, then evolutionary systems kicked in and that's why they became so predator-oriented and prey-oriented and they were mutating for advantages and everything else after the fall. So it's people then say, that's microevolution, though. That's not macroevolution. And again, I think that's a little bit more artificial. I just go, it's all evolution. Um, but that's another one of those little sidebars for me where I'm like, yeah, the animal world pre and post fall in the young earth model must have been pretty dramatically different. So we can't really say when God created the cattle and the birds that what we think of as cattle and birds today were what they thought of as cattle and birds today, right? Um, or the creeping animals or the, all the animals that scurry on the land or whatever else. Because most of all of that stuff now is locked in battle, <laughs> you know, and continues to remain locked in battle. But what we've been doing as human beings is increasingly domesticating things, which is pretty fascinating in its own right. I think it's a part of the reclamation. I think we're slowly moving toward what Eden was intended in a very weird kind of way. It's not kind of an A to B kind of way. But I kind of wonder if that some of that is in play as well. But that's a different topic for a different time. For today, I'm going to be done. But take a breath. We're at a minute and five or an hour and five minutes. That's a lot of podcasts. This may go up as one of the longest ever. Most of you probably didn't stick around to the end. I hope you did, though, because you can at least hear my weird musings on animals. And I also want to be really, really clear. I know less than half of everything. And I certainly do not claim that what I'm communicating is truth because when I look at the created order versus the biblical world, um, I know that, you know what, there's a lot of mysteries in there. And I'm kind of okay with that. In fact, again, I'm glad that God left a level of ambiguity so we would be those who wrestle with God as opposed to there's so much clarity. We never wrestle. We just conclude and we move on. Um, and then maybe even that, we never reinvestigate. So we never ask fresh questions and therefore we don't really grow. We just stagnate. Like that's why I'm kind of down with all of this. And as long as you remember the God of the Bible has created the universe and he's personally revealed in the person of Jesus Christ who came to live, die, and rise again so that we might be rekindled in our relationship and calling of God that goes back to Genesis 1. As long as you keep that in mind, you're going to be good. And the more you do that, we will all be effective everyday missionaries. <laughs>